and welcome to Turn On The Lights. I'm Kate Armate. And I'm Don Berwick. With Turn On The Lights, we put a spotlight on ways to improve the healthcare system in the U.S. Thanks for listening. The numbers are astounding. According to a 2022 Kaiser Health News NPR investigation, more than 100 million people in the United States live with healthcare debt. For context, that is millions more than the populations of California, Texas, and Florida combined. According to a Kaiser Family Foundation poll, a quarter of adults with medical or dental debt owe more than $5,000, and about one in five with any amount of debt, said they don't expect to ever pay it off. The problem hurts even people with higher incomes and those with insurance, but it hits the poorest, the uninsured, African-Americans and Latinos even harder. But the strongest predictor of medical debt, stronger than either poverty or lack of insurance, is illness. How did we get here? Why is medical debt a uniquely American problem? And what can we do about it? Here to help us understand this staggering issue is Bernita Haynes. Ms. Haynes is a staff attorney with the National Consumer Law Center. Before joining NCLC, she served as a director at Georgia Watch, which is a state-based consumer advocacy organization in Atlanta, where she worked to make quality health care, financial protection, and civil justice more equitable and accessible for all. Bernita Haynes, welcome to Turn on the Lights. Thanks for having me here. Maybe we can start with a basic question here. This is a topic that I think in some ways, many of our listeners will have experienced a bill from a doctor or a nurse or a hospital or a healthcare facility. But tell us a little bit about the notion of medical debt. What is medical debt? So medical debt impacts so many Americans. It's an alarming number of consumers who struggle with medical debt in this country, actually. It represents about 58% of all debts that we see in collections. And 62% of bankruptcies are related to medical debt. So that's, uh, for, if I may say, Bernita, that's 62% of all debts in collections are medical in nature, healthcare related? Is that right? So 58% of all debts in collections are medical debts. And then 62% of bankruptcies are related to medical debt as people have reported to the CFPB. So that's of any kind of bankruptcy. So it's the biggest driver Mm -hmm. of bankruptcy in the country. And what does that mean in terms of numbers? Like is that a few million people? What is the raw number of people that are affected by that. I wish I could tell you the raw number of people, but 62% is pretty substantial. And that's just folks who are reporting to the CFPB, to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, that they have considered medical debt in their decision to file bankruptcy. That's pretty profound. So it's a huge problem. And how does it happen? How does this come about? What helps to form a medical debt for an individual or a family? There are really a variety of reasons medical debt is a problem. I will add that this problem that we just explained here about so many people who have medical debt, it's worse in the South. And one of the reasons for that is because Medicaid has not been expanded in the South. So literally, lack of health insurance is one of the key drivers of medical debt. And what we see, as of 2021 anyway, are five states with the highest uninsured rates, Florida, Georgia, Oklahoma, Texas, and Wyoming, they hadn't expanded Medicaid eligibility and you see higher amounts of medical debt in those states in Florida, Georgia, and so forth. 
Another common cause that people have reported to Kaiser Family Foundation and other entities that research medical debt is chronic conditions. So folks who have chronic conditions have to interface with the healthcare system far more frequently, and this puts them at greater risk for medical debt. So individuals with chronic conditions regularly report that they experience medical debt more than folks without chronic conditions. With shorter bankruptcy, when someone has this medical debt, and is in collection. So what happens? What's the downstream effect on a family or a person when they find themselves in that situation? The effect of medical debt is really wide ranging. Medical debt ends up on credit reports, even though credit bureaus have recently announced that they're going to be removing a substantial portion of medical debt from credit reports. Some will still remain on credit reports. As we know, credit scores affect everything from your ability to obtain housing, employment, and so forth. So medical debt can have such a wide ranging effect, literally on your ability to have a roof over your head, to have a job, to pay the bills. Folks often will start prioritizing their medical debts over very important bills like their mortgage or rent and things like that, or their prescription drugs. And so we'll see people making these unfortunate decisions between whether I should buy my prescriptions this month or actually trying to pay down this medical debt and so forth. So medical Um, debt is making it less possible for people to take the medicines that would make them healthier, which might lead them to the hospital, which would then perpetuate the cycle, presumably, of creating more debt. Add to the institution. Potentially, yes. And I want to also add that even outside of those kind of material consequences like that, medical debt just contributes generally to poor health outcomes. There's this persistent stress that people experience when they're dealing with medical debt that harms your physical if you are deciding not to buy your prescriptions, deciding to forego a healthcare visit, for instance. And then there's the effect on your psychological health, just a general stress. People struggling with medical debt regularly avoid the necessary care that they need. They regularly forego prescriptions because they can't afford them or they don't want to deal with the potential cost. People struggling with medical debt may even reduce spending on food. All these things that actually can harm health and create this sort of vicious cycle. It's important too to note that certain communities are more affected by chronic conditions than other communities. So Black communities, for instance, have higher rates of chronic conditions. That includes cancer, high rates of cancer, infant maternal mortality, heart disease, etc. All that disparately impacting Black families and leading to more medical bills. And as a result, leading to this vicious cycle of avoiding health care, reducing spending on prescriptions and food and things of that nature. So it can definitely trap people in this cycle of medical debt. You mentioned that there were those greater amounts of medical debt occurring in states in the South that have not expanded Medicaid. That's one, I suppose, risk factor. You mentioned chronic disease. It sounds like There are demographic differences as well, not just chronic diseases, but there are also racial and ethnic differences in where medical debt concentrates, medical bankruptcy concentrates. Can you say a little bit more about what you're Mm -hmm. you're seeing there? Yeah, and all of that intersects. So we see higher rates of medical debt in the South. Black families are more concentrated in the South. It's where the majority, from a percentage standpoint, Black folks reside in this country. Chronic conditions more disparately impact Black families. So all of these things intersect. I refer to this sort of intersection as the racial health gap and the racial wealth gap. These two gaps feed into each other. So the racial health gap refers to these disparities in healthcare, access and healthcare quality, healthcare outcomes across 
race. And then the racial wealth gap refers to these disparities in income, assets, and debts of households across race. And what we see is this combination of the two interacting. So a lot of folks who get a $500 medical bill may be able to afford it, for instance. But if you're already dealing with a lower amount of wealth, your lower income, and so forth, which is much more common among Black families, then you're not necessarily going to be able to deal with that medical bill. That may then convince you to avoid healthcare services when you need them to avoid certain prescriptions. It may just increase your stress, which then feeds into whatever conditions you already have. And it just sounds terrible as I talk about it. And it really is terrible to live it, this vicious cycle. So, Bernita, you've made it clear that there's demographic asymmetry here and a racial distribution. Do white Americans also suffer from medical debt as far as you know? Yes, absolutely. Medical debt hits everyone. This is also why it has a tendency to be a bipartisan issue in a lot of ways. There's much more opportunity to actually get folks across party lines to agree on solutions to medical debt because it really does hit everyone. It just hits some folks more desperately. So the Urban Institute has some really great data on medical debt and how it impacts communities of color versus white families. So for instance, when the Urban Institute recently created a medical debt map, which I would totally suggest that any listeners yeah, we'll uh, take sure a look at. Or put a, put yeah. What's really great about that map is that they actually break down how much the median medical debt is in collections, and they break it down by white communities versus communities of color. Now, they don't necessarily segment which communities of color, but what we see, for instance, and they keep this up to date, what we see is that 22% of white communities have medical debt in collections versus 35% of communities of color. And even if you look at the actual amount of medical debt in collections, it differs from white communities to communities of color. The median amount of medical debt in collections for white communities is 1,600 and something versus 1,800 and something for communities of color. So there's Um, a disparity not only in health outcome, there's a disparity in the means to begin with, and there's also a disparity It turns out in the debt collection process itself, which would make sense, it just goes to the point of how pervasive and systemic racism and discriminatory practices really are embedded in almost every structure in our society, but specifically here now in the debt accumulation and pursuit practice here. That's say more about debt collection, what's going on out there. Oh, debt collection. I wish I could say that there are some great changes happening to protect folks a bit more from aggressive medical debt collection. There are. A lot of them are happening at the state level. They're not happening necessarily at the federal level. So let's take a step back, though. In terms of medical debt collections, impacts here are disparate as well, but let's just start with the basic reality. As noted at the beginning, medical debt is consistently the most common type of pass-due bill that shows up on past due debt that shows up on trade lines and credit reports. And that's from CFPB data that they've collected over the past couple of years. It's consistently the most common type of past due bill about which consumers are actually being contacted by debt collectors. So when folks are being contacted by debt collectors, they're more often than not being contacted about a medical bill. Black people carry a disproportionate amount of medical debt, as we've mentioned here, compared to other racial groups, and are more often contacted by debt collectors, not just because they hold more medical debt, but because the Federal Trade Commission has shown that debt collectors often target Black communities. You may wonder, how is that possible? Well, with zip code data and a fairly segregated country, as we still are, it's pretty easy to figure out which communities and which households may be Black or not. 
Despite the ACA's credit and collection provisions and the protections under the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. Say, so what are those provisions in the Affordable Care Act? So. so the Affordable Care Act requires nonprofit hospitals to offer financial assistance to low-income patients, to income-eligible patients, before they engage in any aggressive debt collections. But the problem with the ACA's requirements is that enforcement is limited. It doesn't set any minimum income eligibility threshold. So that leaves it up to the hospitals or the states themselves to set a minimum income eligibility threshold. Patients do not have any ability to sue if they feel that their rights have been violated under the Affordable Care Act regarding financial assistance. So if they feel they've been billed, even though they should have received financial assistance before being billed, they don't have any ability to sue. It's all up to the IRS to enforce the charity care provisions. These charity care provisions, financial assistance provision of the ACA is what allows hospitals, one of the things that allows hospitals to keep their 501c3 status, they have to provide a certain amount of financial assistance to maintain their taxes and status, but there's just not enough enforcement. So we see very little spending from hospitals on charity care, despite how much revenue hospitals are pulling in. Spending on charity care is limited. Maryland Nurses United did a fantastic report just a couple of years ago talking about the lack of charity care being provided in that state versus how much hospitals are pursuing people, dogging people out for a few hundred dollars of medical debt that they owe. So despite the ACA's efforts to provide some layer of protection from medical debt by requiring hospitals to provide financial assistance, it's just not solving the problem at this point. One of the questions we have, we have an international audience uh, for this podcast, Bernita. And I just wonder if you could comment on this. I don't know if you're in a position to do that, but is this a uniquely American issue? Is this something that is true here and nowhere else? Tens of millions of people in this country are in medical debt or owing payments. And is this an American issue or is this true elsewhere? I think it's safe to say that medical debt is a U.S. phenomenon. We've not been able to get even something as limited as a public option in place here, where you have other countries that have public health care system and a private option. Right. We don't have anything remotely similar to the NHS. We don't even have anything similar to what Canada has, which is a little bit more like a private option, but more of a public system. So this is a uniquely U.S. problem. By that, you mean at a private option, that would be the public system is the default system with people. Exactly. The private systems. We have the exact opposite. We have a- Exactly. Large private system with, uh, in many cases, there isn't a public option. Exactly. Only for certain demos, right? So we have the VA system, which is essentially the public system for veterans, and they have the option to go outside of it for a private provider and private insurance. And then we have Medicare and Medicaid, which are a public payer system, and they have the option to supplement with private insurance. But it's very segmented by specific demographics in this country who has access to either a public payer system or a public hospital system. Bernita, this is very depressing stuff. Let me just add a little thin ice here. So if you read Charles Dickens or go back in history, there is a connection in cultural misperception between debt and merit, debt and personal effort. So a debtor is a sinner or somebody who should have known better. How do you respond to that kind of call here that this debt is because people didn't behave responsibly? Well, in terms of medical debt, you can't determine whether you're going to get sick. 
you can't determine whether you're going to be significantly injured and end up in a hospital dealing with a gargantuan medical bill. Literally, it's the one type of debt that you just don't have much control over. But that said, about debt in general and this connection to morality that we have, we talk about debt, it does really hold people back. I saw when I was interning at Community Legal Services many years ago, how difficult it was sometimes to counsel people on their option to file bankruptcy when they were dealing with a significant water bill. Folks were very adamant about, no, I pay my bills. I'm a responsible member of society and so forth. I've seen it when I was at Georgia Watch, consumer advocacy organization here, and folks would call dealing with substantial medical bills. And I would have to advise them to pursue a credit counselor to talk about bankruptcy as a potential option. And their first response is, no, I'm a responsible person. I pay my bills. And my response regularly became, debt isn't a morality issue. And bankruptcy is literally a legal instrument that just allows you to get back on clear footing, on equal footing. But we do need to, I think, as a culture, have more of a discussion around why we have connected debt to morality and how do we sever this connection? Because it does operate in a lot of people's minds when they're dealing with medical debts and any kinds of debt. I am kind of academic oriented myself from when I was a PhD in English. I got my master's. I stopped at my master's. But one book I always like to refer people to, even though it's a gargantuan text, is David Graeber's book on debt, where he discusses the first 5,000 years of debt and how we really came up with the ideology around debt that is so operative right now. But you're absolutely right that we have this morality connection to debt, and it is a very big problem. And I think it is connected to why we haven't solved some of the issues around medical debt and any other types of debt we see lingering as sort of cultural zeitgeist right now. It sounds like it adds to the pain of people in trouble and feel guilty that they're in trouble. That's not where we, where we need to be. Yeah, it um, adds to the stress. So you work with the National Consumer Law Center. Can you say a few words about that organization, what it does? And we'd love stories about kind of going to bat for people that are in this condition. What's it like? And maybe even can think of a person or two that you've helped out. Yeah. So National Consumer Law Center has been around for many a decade at this point, since 1969. We've used our expertise in consumer law generally and in energy policy to work for consumer justice and economic security for low-income folks and communities of color in the states. Our policy expertise is pretty broad-ranging and sweeps across a lot of project areas including housing, student loan debt, predatory lending, and so forth. We put out, as often as possible, reports, as well as helpful materials for legal aid attorneys who are working across the country, some of whom are working directly with people dealing with medical debt, so that they have some sense of what the levers are that they can use to actually better advocate for their clients. I definitely would love to share a couple of stories with you all about just what I've seen in terms of some folks dealing with medical debt and how they've been able to work through them. One thing I will add, though, before that is that we, in addition to producing these guides for policy folks and for legal aid attorneys and so forth, we do produce some consumer-facing, general public-facing materials. So we have a guide called Surviving Debt, and it's specifically for the general public. And we have a medical debt chapter there. It specifically helps folks understand how to prioritize medical debt, which is you shouldn't prioritize medical debt over more important bills, and how to negotiate, for instance, a payment plan, apply for financial assistance. Can I interrupt you for a second, Bernita? So you just said something really important for our listeners, I think. I want to make sure I draw this one out. You just said you should not prioritize medical debt over other important essential 
bills or other things that are vital to you? Can you say, what's a more essential bill? Like what, mm-hmm, what, mm-hmm. what do you mean by that? Say a little bit more there. Yes. So it is seriously important to prioritize debts that the non-payment of which would immediately harm your family. So for instance, your mortgage or your rent, by not paying them, you lose the roof over your head. That's a bill you should prioritize over medical debt. Maybe your automobile payment, if you need that to go to work, for instance. And debts like that, bills like that, that actually affect your immediate ability to survive, your immediate ability to be housed, employed, and so forth and so on. It's also very important to not let debt collectors and credit score worries stress you out too much because that often forces people into bad decisions where folks will start prioritizing medical debt over can, their can mortgage. Can you say a little bit about this? So I've had debt collectors come after me. Actually, the birth of my child, my first child resulted in bills that went unpaid evidently, bills that I didn't know about, frankly, because it's not just one bill. There's like seven bills related to the hospital, radiology, obstetrics, mm-hmm. the providers, et cetera. And evidently something didn't get paid and it went off to a collector. I got many, many emails, messages, phone calls, whatever. How do you recognize when to not respond? How would you counsel someone who's at the sharp end of all of that to deal with it? What's your advice to your consumers? So debt collectors often use really aggressive tactics, as you've just explained there, to pressure you to pay, even if it's not in your best interest. Remember, they're interested in you paying the debt. They will threaten to ruin your credit rating, may even report the collection effort to a credit reporting agency. If they do report the debt, the reporting agency will not even include the debt in its reporting unless it's over six months old. So that's important to know. It is very important to recognize when you are being hassled in a way that creates a certain level of urgency that honestly just isn't there for medical debt. So for example, medical debt has to be over 180 days old anyway, before it ends up on your credit report. And actually with some of the voluntary changes that the credit bureaus have just agreed to, that's extended to a year. But that was previous before these changes that the credit bureaus announced. So recognizing some of the rights you have around uh, medical debt Collections is one of the important ways to determine whether or not to actually heed a debt collector's advice about taking certain actions. It's also important to know that certain ways that debt collectors contact you are actually against the law. There's a really great section in our surviving debt that specifically talks about debt collection rights that you have. And there's also a guide that I love to bring people's attention to from Georgia Watch. It's called the Georgia Consumer Guide for Medical Bills and Debt. Mm -hmm. It's relevant outside of Georgia, but it has some very specific information too about what your rights are in terms of fair debt collection practices. So debt collectors are not allowed legally to call you at your place of work, to call your family members, employers, to inquire about your debt. They're not allowed to call you past certain hours of the day. So knowing that is also a key to understanding whether or not to heed a debt collector's advice. There are a lot of steps that folks kind of have to take to recognize when they're being hassled too much. Yeah. Right. It's like knowing when to how to detect a phishing scam in your email, right? To be able to understand where the collectors are going wrong and where they're asking for things that don't make a lot of sense. Yeah. They count on you not knowing your rights. You're mentioning some resources that sound wonderful. We'll make sure that an associate of the podcast will post them. But you want to, for viewers that are interested right now, you want to repeat again the particular resource you talked about and how people can get access to it. 
Yeah. So our NCLC's guide, Surviving Debt, can easily be accessed on our site at nclc.org. My previous organization, I wrote a guide called the Georgia Consumer Guide for Medical Bills and Debt. You can easily find that guide by going to georgiawatch.org. should be on the homepage. And like I said, it's relevant outside of Georgia. There's only a couple of parts of it that are specific to Georgia. Bernita, maybe we can ask you this question. We know there's a lot in the news about healthcare costs, about how they're growing, they're a bigger and bigger share of our national economy in general. With all that spending, all that money that's going into healthcare, is this problem getting worse? Is it staying the same? Is it getting better or fewer people going to debt? What's the trajectory here? Is this out of control? What's your sense of it? Where are we headed? It's difficult to say. There has been a lot of energy around how to solve medical debt, how to deal with the medical debt crisis over the last couple of years. I think COVID really sort of highlighted some of the inefficiencies in our healthcare system and also some of the potential solutions. Some of the COVID protections really did a lot to help people avoid medical debt. You may have seen an article, a fact sheet just recently that the White House released with data showing that 8.2 million fewer Americans are struggling with medical debt as of late. Now, we're hesitant to claim victory so early because we still have a significant number of people dealing with medical debt. But I think that particular announcement from the White House at least goes to show that there is a lot of momentum right now to do something about medical debt and to keep that number going up, that 8.2 million fewer Americans struggling with medical debt. And it also shows that there's something we can do about it. Exactly. take 8.2 million people and release them from this situation, then that means that there's something that we're doing that's working. What, in your estimation, what's having that kind of good effect? What's helping these 8.2 million people come out of medical debt? Well, definitely some of the COVID protections that help people access healthcare, expanded Medicaid, for instance, have gone a long way to reduce medical debt concerns for folks. Unfortunately, they're going to be expiring. So a lot of people will be losing coverage soon. The No Surprises Act, which is the law that bans surprise medical bills that was passed in 2020 and went into effect at the beginning of last year, has also had some impact. One of the primary ways that folks ended up dealing with medical debt was literally because of surprise billing. So in addition to being uninsured, that's a major cause of medical debt as well as chronic conditions. But surprise billing is another source where you think that you are going in network. You think you've done everything you need to do to make sure that it's covered by your insurance. And then you're seen by folks who are not in your insurance network and you end up balanced billed from what your insurance refused to pay. So the No Surprises Act has hopefully had a decent impact, but there's still so much more that needs to be done. And to be quite honest, these federal policy efforts are really great first steps in tackling the medical debt crisis, but more robust solutions are needed. And lawmakers do need to prioritize Black families because of the severe and disproportionate impact of medical debt on Black families. And that really requires focusing on the states where Black folks are heavily concentrated, focusing on ways to prevent medical debt at the outset and not after the fact is also crucial. Bernita, can you just, for the benefit of our listeners, make a couple more comments on this No Surprises Act? What kinds of provisions are protective there and are they working? Yeah. So the No Surprises Act has very importantly a provision, among others, that protects folks from surprise bills from ambulance rides, but only air ambulance rides, unfortunately. The Surprise Billing Act also has some self-pay requirements. So, for instance, patients are allowed to actually request the cost 
up front. So some of the crucial protections that are part of the No Surprises Act include the dispute resolution process, as well as the good faith estimate. So the good faith estimate allows consumers to get an estimate of the potential cost of the service before agreeing to the service. Now, providers aren't required to provide the good faith estimate of charges or for unanticipated services. But if a patient actually requests a good faith estimate, then the provider should give an itemized cost of the services that are scheduled at least three days in advance, for instance. And that's very helpful for self-pay patients, patients who are uninsured, so that they have some sort of upfront notice about what they might be looking at so that they're not caught off guard. The dispute resolution process is the other very important part of the No Surprises Act. What it means is that if there is a disagreement between how much a provider charges and how much the insurance wants to pay, then the patient has to be left out of the middle of that. And the insurer and the provider have to go through a dispute resolution process. So no more balance billing the patient if the insurance and the provider have a disagreement about how much something should cost and how much should be paid. So they the patient, have to go through a dispute. Mm-hmm. The patient doesn't end up holding the bag. I hope that gets in, implemented. How much of the medical problem, by the way, is our drug costs? We read so much about very high pharmaceutical costs. Is that a driver of this? You know, that is actually one thing I can't speak on, pharmaceutical costs. I just have not done enough research in that area to speak on it. Fine. Thanks. Bernita, this has been such an incredibly enlightening conversation. You've clarified so much for us here in, in terms of the landscape here. Solutions here for a minute. I mean, some of which you talked about in terms of creating better legal protections. Do you see anything else in the landscape here that's going to help with this problem You hear Mm -hmm. about some of these kind of fantastical notions of like debt forgiveness and other types of things that are kind of be taking place. Are those things materially impactful? Are they changing the landscape? Are they having an impact? Are there other things that we should be thinking about that are part of the solution here? Canceling medical deaths is definitely an important part of this process, but we have to figure out again how to prevent medical debt at the outset. So in terms of some solutions that will go a long way towards doing that, improving the ACA, for instance, by expanding the financial assistance requirements to include nonprofit and for-profit healthcare facilities. A couple of states in this country actually have a significant number of for-profit healthcare facilities. That's Texas and I believe Nevada. By that you mean, so the nonprofit provision is that they have to put some of their community benefit dollars to help support charity care. You're suggesting the same would be done on the for-profit hospital side, right? Yes, that these financial assistance requirements would apply to for-profit hospitals as well as nonprofit hospitals. Exactly. Broadening the income eligibility requirements to cover uninsured and insured patients alike. Some people are underinsured and that's the reason why they can't afford health care. Requiring providers to screen all patients for financial assistance eligibility before billing them. That's crucial presumptive eligibility, in other words, and reasonable notice to patients before taking debt collection actions, allowing patients to actually enforce state and federal financial assistance policy laws in court to hold violating hospitals responsible. So those are some major improvements to the ACA that would go a long way towards reducing medical debt at the outset. For States that haven't expanded Medicaid, which is very important to tackle those states because, again, this is primarily Southern states, and that's where so many Black families are concentrated, creating some sort of federal program that allows the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services to offer some sort of Medicaid-like plan to those eligible in the Medicaid holdout states and the states that haven't expanded. Some legislators in Texas, some representatives in Texas were actually working on something like that at one point. I'm not sure if it's still active. 
incorporating medical debt cancellation, as I mentioned, and Medicaid expansion into sort of a larger strategy towards racial justice reparations, discharging medical debt that's actually incurred at facilities operated by the federal government, so like the VA, hospitals that are run by the Department of Defense, for instance, and even for privately held medical debt, which is what we see some of what RIP medical debt is doing around the country. And I would be absolutely remiss without saying that enacting a universal publicly funded national single payer health plan administered at the state and local levels would go a long way towards remedying the problem that we currently have around medical debt. Brittany, running short on time, but I absolutely, we got to learn more from you about this really serious problem. I thank you so much. We have a habit of asking every one of our guests to give us kind of score on the optimism to pessimism meter about whether this is, where do you predict this is going to go? Do you have a sense of favorability that we're going to tackle this finally as a nation? You mentioned it might even be bipartisan, which is a pretty interesting thought. Or are you more of a pessimist? Where are you on that scale? The lawyer in me wants to say pessimist, but I'm also strangely hopeful. And I say that because I think there's been such a groundswell of interest in this space in the last couple of years. And I think COVID has just done so much to elevate the importance of medical debt as an issue and even advocating for a universal system that I think the more we keep the conversation going, the more we elevate some of the systems in place that are currently working well, the better. So I am pretty hopeful. I'd say I'm about 70% hopeful. Well, we'll take that and appreciate it. It sounds like I can be hopeful partly because of the work you're doing. Can you say once again how listeners can tune into the work that the National Consumer Law Center is doing? And, you know, if they want to contact you or get to your website. Yes, please do not hesitate to visit National Consumer Law Center's website at nclc.org. You can find just a wealth of resources on our site and you can easily find my contact information. And again, my name is Bernita Haynes. And if you have any interest in reaching out to me, do not hesitate. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was pretty compelling stuff, Kadar. What struck you from Bernita's copious information? Yeah, that was incredible. She uh, just, what a masterclass in understanding how medical debt takes place and what it means, how to avoid it, what to do about it. It's pretty remarkable. I'm glad she's 70% of the way towards optimism. I suppose that's a good sign. I think it'd be interesting to learn more about this bipartisanship possibility. It, It does seem like in DC these days, You hear people talking about this. It does feel like the kind of issue that everyone could potentially get behind and solve. The instruments for solving it, on the other hand, don't feel entirely bipartisan. Expanding Medicaid is probably one of the most contentious things that we've been dealing with in healthcare for the last decade or longer. And some of the provisions around expanding Medicaid benefits, getting for-profit institutions to start creating kind of circumstances that are similar to what nonprofit institutions do with community benefit, those would be pretty tough to pass. I imagine, and get through. So it's exciting that there's some bipartisanship around. It feels a little bit like the solutions, the policy solutions anyway, feel not entirely clear to me how they're going to make them happen. Yeah, I feel the same. Although in history here, when Medicare and Medicaid were passed back in 1965, every state had to adopt Medicaid, the original Medicaid, and that took decades. It was not an instant adoption at all. So, and we're pretty, we're in our trajectory now. You know, it's so economically harmful to a state not to expand Medicaid. The optimist in me can't help but believe that the states will eventually come around and do that. And that, according to her, that'll be a 
good step toward solving this problem. I wonder how much people connect these two things, right? I mean, so Bernita did it beautifully in that conversation where they connected the notion that we're impoverishing families to this notion of Medicaid expansion. It's such a political hot potato. And yet the very real notion that medical debt bankruptcy is directly connected to whether a state expands Medicaid. I mean, this ought to be in some ways a bigger story. And yet I don't know that anybody really talks about expanding Medicaid in that way. So that was really striking to me in that conversation. I agree with you. I think the data are very sound on this though. The Kaiser Family Foundation and others yeah. have done very serious studies showing exactly that. Under current statute with the expansion of Medicaid, this problem isn't solved, but it certainly is mitigated. So one can be hopeful there. I got intrigued by her exploration of the morality to debt connection that I asked her about I think there is this overhanging question of what is the social contract here? You know, what are we saying about people who find themselves in these very difficult straits? My own belief is, as she said, you know, this isn't a choice people make to be in medical debt. It comes at them and they're some stratum in society and they just can't afford the cost. But unless we break the merit to debt myth, um, it's going to be a little hard to develop the momentum that we need to solve the problem. And the problem is solvable. Bernita didn't have at her fingertips the international comparison, but I agree with her. Maybe that's something we should be exploring with other guests. I think this is, if not uniquely American, it's especially American mm -hmm. problem, which other countries have solved. Uh, we can too. I feel the same way. I don't, the data we can look into, but it seems very clear that the conditions that we have in this country that are such that we would have a circumstance in which we would have large numbers of, and it's not just a small number of Americans that are facing this. It's a vicious combination of things. The fact that there's no clear public option that we have for the most part, very, very high medical costs relative. The incremental cost of anything is higher here than it is, for example, in the UK or Canada or elsewhere. So we have this combination of two things that's at play here that's driving a lot of this. I also wondered, and we didn't get a chance to ask her about this, but I wonder if the recent increase in the use and consumption of high deductible health plans might also be contributing to the outrageous amount of debt that we're seeing at the moment, because a lot of this stuff would not be met by the deductible. And you'd have to up with a high deductible, you'd end up being on the hook for a lot of this, the initial payments here. So I'm actually curious about whether or not high deductible plans are increasing our exposure to medical debt as a society, as a country. I have the same thought, Kedar. Um, the problem of healthcare insurance in America is not just people don't have insurance, which is right. there's still almost 30 million people that don't. It's that when you dig deeply as you're now inquiring into how good the policies are that people do have, there is a lot of gap, not pure junk policies anymore into the ACA, but a lot of things that aren't covered that should be or that people thought were covered. And that's a subject I want to dig in also in future episodes, the quality of an insurance coverage. And that's probably, I'll venture to say, as big a generator of the kind of medical debt we're talking about as having no insurance at all, maybe sometimes. Yeah. I, you know, the other thing I thought was something that we should, I think this is such an interesting idea, but there's the physiologic consequences of medical debt. I, I don't have a better way of saying that maybe, but the idea that <laughs> the fact that people end up in medical debt or have medical debt has not just a effect on our pocketbooks and our bank accounts, but it also has this other effect you described right at the top of the call and the discussion. It was about how it affects us physically. It was about the health consequences of the medical debt itself. It creates stress. It creates allostatic load, as it's sometimes described. It creates worsening of chronic conditions. It results in people not taking their medicines. And this seems to me a vicious cycle. You've got this, and she described it as that, but boy, is that a pernicious loop and a really harmful loop to get trapped into where you're avoiding care because you can't afford it. And then you end up even sicker and, <laughs> and in care anyway, 
and that further worsens your debt circumstance. I mean, that how do you break that cycle? Yeah, I think your conversation with her during the interview really nailed that. And it is a tragic cycle, mm-hmm. one which makes it harder and harder for people to get out of. And I want to reemphasize with enormous respect for the racial component of this and the social justice component. As Bernita said, this is a problem for many, many Americans of many ethnicities, many races. And so this is one where we've got to stop any of them and us thinking where we are all in this stew. And uh, even people who think that they're well protected against medical debt may suddenly find out that there is the floor has fallen out and they're in trouble. So it's trouble we can get out of. We just have to decide to. Tens of millions, as according to some estimates, are facing these kinds of debts. So it's not a small problem and it's not a few of us that are in it. There's a lot of folks that are facing this. Don, thank you for the conversation. With thank to Bernita, of course, for leading us in that. There's a lot of resources out there as well. That's another encouraging point here. Lots of interesting stuff that we can do to protect ourselves and our families from this problem. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Turn on the Lights, where we're trying to shed light on the thorniest problems and the most innovative solutions in healthcare. We'd like to help you understand. To listen to more episodes or find the show notes and other resources, please visit us at ihi.org. Thank you.